Good to be with you all today. My name is Elliot. I'm one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of uh, reading the scripture for today and preaching from Luke 17. And we're going to go verses 1 through 19. So I encourage you to follow along in your copy of God's Word. Uh, we're starting at Luke 17 and we're going 1 through 19. And just as a reminder of our practice, I'm going to read the whole passage here. And then after I'm done, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And you'll say, thanks be to God. Luke 17, starting in verse 1. He, that's Jesus, said to his disciples, Offenses will certainly come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, the Lord said, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Which one of you, having a servant tending sheep or plowing, will say to him when he comes in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat? Instead, will he not tell him, Prepare something for me to eat, get ready and serve me while I eat and drink? Later you can eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did what was commanded? In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, We are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. While traveling to Jerusalem, he passed between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten men with leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he told them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And while they were going, they were cleansed. But one of them, seeing that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice gave glory to God. He fell face down at his feet, thanking him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus said, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Didn't any return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he told him, Get up and go on your way. Your faith has saved you. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we give you thanks because your word really is a gift to us. In the pages of the Gospels and prophets and narratives, you invite us to take on the yoke of Jesus. You invite us to see your beauty, your glory. So I pray, Father, this morning you would send out your Holy Spirit for that purpose, to put the spotlight on Jesus. And whether you show us something new in his heart that thrills us or something old that we've grown dull to, Lord, we pray with one heart, show us Christ's glory. In his name we pray, amen. I was recently invited to a prayer meeting, and there was all sorts of people there. Uh, there were several people who were in a local recovery program uh, from addiction. And so we're all sitting in this big room, and it was pretty wide open. We're just praying uh, what was, whatever was on our hearts. And I was really struck by the prayer of one man. You know, it could be awkward uh, praying in front of other people. You're tempted to maybe impress them. Uh, and this is kind of how his prayer went. God, thank you for the good smell in this room. That's where it started. My ears perked up. 
He went on to thank God from saving him from the darkness of his addiction. He thanked God for even erasing some of those dark memories. He couldn't even remember some of his lowest points in life. He thanked God with heartfelt gratitude for the people in his program and at his church. He threw in a request for a car. He said, God, that would be nice, but you know what I need, but I'll take a car. And then he told God that he loved him. Amen. But sitting in that room praying, and after he said amen, my heart just leapt and said, I want that. I want what he has. Well, in Luke 17, verses 1 through 19, Luke kind of gives us like a hodgepodge. Uh, it's like going to the buffet with Luke. We have some teachings from Jesus, we have a parable, and then we have a story about Jesus. And I was really struggling in my own reading of this passage this week of like, what, what's kind of the theme? And I was helped by a sermon that actually uh, Don sent me by a great preacher named Brian Chapel. And if I were to put it in my own words, kind of what's going on in this passage, I think Jesus is laying out for us the posture of a disciple. And when all is said and done, uh, when we look back, step back at this description of a disciple, our hearts should say, I want that. So what is this, this posture of a disciple? And as a reminder, a disciple is a follower of Jesus, someone who apprentices with him in all of life. This is what Jesus is calling us to. Jesus calls his disciples to be holy, humble, and happy. He calls us to be holy, humble, and happy. So let's look at each one of these characteristics in their turn. So in verses 1 through 6, Jesus calls us to holy relationships. To holy relationships. Uh, So when I say the word holy, I wonder what kind of mental images come to your mind. Holy. Maybe incense. Maybe a nun with the prayer hands. Uh, Maybe private prayer. Maybe cozying up in your favorite leather chair with your Bible and your cup of tea. Maybe you think about avoiding certain movies or music. What do you think about when I say the word holy? Well, what Jesus shows us and the apostles show us over and over again in the Bible is that holiness is personal, but it's not private. And here Jesus is describing holiness in terms of our relationships. Often we gauge our relationship with God, our vertical relationship, if you will, by those private disciplines. And that's, that's true in part, but all throughout the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles say, you really know how you're doing with God based on how you're doing with those who are closest to you. So when God wants to test your heart, when God wants to test your holiness, he shows up at your living room. He sees how you treat your roommate your brother, your sister, your parents, your spouse, your kids. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's laying out basic principles. In verse 1, it says he said to his disciples. There's crowds around, but he's speaking to his followers. And he's laying out three basic principles for our relational commitments together in verses 1 through 4. Here they are. Don't cause sin. Call out sin and forgive sin. Let's look at this first one. Jesus says, offenses will certainly come, but woe to the ones through whom they come because their judgment will be terrible. In fact, it would be better for them to have a heavy stone tied around their neck and thrown into the sea for them to deal with me and my judgment. Uh, This word offense 
we use it today kind of to mean like you hurt my feelings. Like, gosh, that really hurt. Or your opinion on that political matter or my favorite movie or my favorite book. That was offensive. That really hurt. But behind this word and kind of the original meaning is a, a block, a rock that you trip over. Uh, to New Hampshireize this, it is those great root systems when we're hiking in New Hampshire that we constantly trip over in the whites. And so what Jesus is saying, don't put anything in the way of little ones to trip them on their way to me. Don't cause anyone to sin. Now this is true of little ones. Later in uh, Luke, in chapter 18, the disciples totally don't live this out and they block the little ones from coming to Jesus because they're too serious. But Jesus says, no, let the little ones come to me. But this is also true of newer believers, people who are struggling in their faith. Jesus is saying, don't cause them to sin. And in verse 3, he says, be on your guard. I love how the NIV translates that. It says, watch yourselves. Watch yourselves because others are watching you and you have an influence on them. So Jesus says, as you live in holy community, don't cause people to sin. And then he says, call out sin. Verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now this is calling out sin for someone's good. It's not pharisaically pointing out the wrong in someone so that you feel better. But it's genuinely rebuking a brother, someone close to you and trusted and who's, who's following Jesus. And then he finally he says, forgive sin. And this is amazing. He says, even if someone personally sins against you seven times in a day, if they come back, they repent, they apologize, he says, you must forgive them. So let me paraphrase these three relational commitments. So Jesus says, basically, lead people to me. Don't put anything in the way of little ones coming to me. Join your brothers or your sisters' fight against sin as an ally, not as an enemy. You're trying to point things out to help them because you love them. And then three, Jesus is calling us to be approachable and welcoming to fellow sinners. Be the type of person that your brother or sister would want to apologize to. This is what Jesus is calling us to. And so the disciples, they hear these things. I shouldn't cause sin in other people. I should forgive sin. I should call it out. And they they cry out, increase our faith, God. They're basically saying, Jesus, this is super hard. Would you help us out? Maybe you're feeling like that as well as we review those relational commitments. And Jesus' reply is surprising. He basically says, even a mustard seed size faith, so a tiny seed, has the ability to do amazing things like uproot a strong tree. Jesus is teaching us that in the kingdom, a little faith goes a long way. It's not the strength of our faith that is decisive in our obedience, but it's the strength of Jesus. A little goes a long way. I wonder if there's any of you uh, here this morning who have a fear of flying. Uh, I used to a bit more. I'm not as afraid anymore. But if you have that particular fear, uh, if you have a flight planned coming up, let's say in a few weeks, every time you think about it, your heart rate gets a little higher. Uh, When you're actually in the plane and taxiing, I think 
taxi. I'll have to check with you, Chris, later. But you're in the plane getting ready to take off. You're starting to get sweaty palms. And then when you're in the air, every little bit of turbulence, you know, almost gives you a heart attack. Well, eventually you make it to your destination. And what was decisive in your safe trip? Your overwhelming confidence in the pilot or the pilot's ability? Of course, it's the pilot's capability. You won't say when you get off the plane, man, I was such a good passenger. I had faith in you. You could fly this thing. No, you were terrified. You just had enough faith in the pilot to step on the plane. But the pilot took care of the rest. Well, this is how it is when we follow Jesus. In our weak, trembling faith, we say, okay, I'm going to take the next step with you, Jesus. And he comes through again and again. He is the pilot in our turbulence. He is our strength when we are weak. And he not only gives us commands, but he enables his people to walk with him in his commands. So one value we have at River of Grace is taking the next step with Jesus. So Jesus often described following him like being on a way, on a path. And so you might hear around here, what's the next step? In your community group, conversation after, you know, grabbing some coffee. What's the next step with Jesus? And I wonder what that is for you. And maybe what is the next step that you're kind of afraid of? Here are a few examples. Maybe you resonate with one of these. Is it getting rid of something in your life? Maybe you have something you keep tripping over or causing other people to trip over. Is it getting rid of something in your life? Or is the next step with Jesus confessing a hidden sin to a trusted friend? Maybe you're hiding something in the dark. You're terrified to bring it out to a trusted friend as you confess that sin. Satan is accusing you over and over and you're afraid to come out to that friend. Maybe it's taking the leap of faith for the first time. Maybe you've been considering Jesus, listening to sermons, coming to church, being around Christians, and you're thinking, oh, I want to take the leap. I want to take the leap and trust Jesus with my whole life. Whatever your scary next step with Jesus is, just hear this, that even a little bit of faith goes a long way. Just take the next step with your eyes on Jesus. Don't wait till you have perfect faith, whatever that is. You won't attain it. Even a mustard seed size faith is enough. Jesus is strong enough for the two of you. So here, Jesus, he calls us to a posture of holiness. And this is a pretty high bar. And so he also calls us to humility in verses 7 through 10. He calls us to humble service. And he tells a parable or a story that's kind of hard to stomach with a punchline that kind of gets us. Look at verse 7. Jesus says, Which one of you, having a servant tending sheep or plowing, will say to him when he comes in from the field, Come in at once and sit down to eat? Instead, will he not tell him, Prepare something for me to eat, get ready, and serve me while I eat and drink? Later you can eat and drink. Does he... Thank the servant because he did what was commanded. In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. So the disciples are hearing Jesus teach and it makes them say, increase our faith. They feel like this is a big ask for me. I can't cause people to sin. I need to rebuke sin and I need to forgive sin. 
We can't do it. And what Jesus does in this parable is he's saying, you think that's a high bar? That's a basic standard if you want to be in my kingdom. And you have Pharisees who are also listening on, who are proud that they keep every part of God's law, although we know not from the heart, not from loving reasons. And Jesus is saying, settle down. You're still unworthy servants. You're just doing what God has told you. So Jesus tells this parable about maybe a hot summer day. There's a servant working out in the field and they come in and they're tired and hungry. And he's saying it would be foolish for that servant to expect to be served dinner by the master. The white cloth pulled out all those things. Uh, Brian Chapel he gives a, a great uh, illustration for this to kind of settle it in our minds in modern times. Imagine this coming week, you catch a cold, still got to go to work. It's a rough week, and you finally make it to Friday, and you call up one of your best friends and say, hey, let's hit up this new restaurant in town. And both of you had a hard week. You're just excited to share this meal together. So you go to a local restaurant in Concord, and you settle in. Waitress comes with menus, and you're looking over things. Waitress kind of mentions, yeah, it's been a hard shift and whatnot, and you kind of just let that go. You order your food, and about 20 minutes later, the waitress comes to you and your friend with your steaming plates of food, sets them down, and then she brings another plate and starts taking off your plate and sits down and says, guys, what a week. Whew, I'm tired. You would probably feel, and most of us would probably say, what are you doing? She said, well, I kind of deserve this. And we would probably say, you're only doing your job. And that's how it is with us as we serve in Jesus' kingdom, as we live out these kingdom principles in relationships. We are only doing our job. And the story really exposes something in our hearts as we think about serving God. We often serve God for ulterior motives. We don't serve God for God, but because we want something that he could give us. We are like the older brother in the prodigal son story that we heard a couple weeks ago who crossed all of his, I'm not even, I'm blanking on that phrase, so I'm going to move on from it. He served his father faithfully, but when his younger brother came back who just made a wreck of his life and his dad threw a party for the younger brother, the older brother did not want to go to the party because he said, Dad, I've been serving you day in and day out and you've never thrown me a party. We saw that that older brother didn't have a love for the father, but love for what the father gave him and his stuff. And so this punchline from Jesus at the end, we are only unworthy servants, hits our pride. It exposes our motivation. And Jesus here, I don't think he's being pessimistic i think he's being realistic with us let's take the relational standards that jesus listed earlier which one of us has never caused another person to stumble which one of us regularly lovingly points out sin in a brother or a sister's life because we care for them which one of us is free of bitterness and fully and freely forgives when someone personally sins against us and apologize. We truly are unworthy servants. But this verse isn't supposed to sound like this. I'm unworthy. It's supposed to sound like this. I'm unworthy. I have a question for you. When the prodigal son came back, 
and after his father threw a party for him, what would his life look like moving forward? After the party, after they cleaned all the dishes, the next day, Monday, he goes back to work. He's in the father's house. He's a son. What would the prodigal son's life look like? You can imagine his dad giving him menial chores around the place and say, hey, son, could you fetch water and grain for the cows? Hey, son, could you scrape the cow manure in the stalls? Yeah, dad, anything you want. I'm unworthy. And this is really the heart of a disciple because in his bones, the younger son knew that he deserved nothing from his dad and yet his dad gave him everything freely. And this is our exact position as disciples. We deserve absolutely nothing from God. In fact, if we have earned anything, it would be his judgment and his rejection for our turning away from him and seeking his stuff instead of his presence. And yet, deserving wrath, God our Father gives us grace. Deserving a slam door, he opens it wide and says, everything I have is yours, daughter. Everything I have is yours, son. And he does all of this through Jesus. Jesus himself is the one worthy servant in the kingdom of God. Think about those three things. Jesus never causes a little one to stumble. He welcomes all who come to him and all who limp their way to him with no obstructions. Think about Jesus' love in your own life, how he won't let your heart go down dark paths. He'll send his Holy Spirit after you. Jesus, time and time again, firmly yet gently puts his hand on your soul and says, come back. Think about Jesus, the worthy servant, every single time you've come to him and said, I'm sorry. He fully and freely with a, a shining smile says, I forgive you. We deserve absolutely nothing, but through Jesus, God has given us everything. And this is the reason that when we get to the book of Revelation, there's only one name that is praised and glorified. One servant. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the one who conquered the grave. Worthy is the name of Jesus who rules now and forever. He is the worthy servant who ushers us into the kingdom of God. All of us unworthy servants. So we're called to this holy, holy relationships. We're called to be humble in our service. And yet this last qualifier is really important. We're called to be holy and humble and deeply happy in Jesus. If love for Jesus is not your sole motivator to obey him, you will end up with a weak imitation holiness and uh, humility. But if joy in Jesus, if happiness in Jesus drives your holiness, drives your humility, we'll live beautiful lives so that neighbors will look at us, hear us talk, hear us pray, and say, I want that. So let's talk about this last posture of a disciple, happiness or happy gratitude from the final verses. So in verse 11, Jesus is done teaching He starts traveling to Jerusalem where he will be unjustly tried, accused to death on a cross. And we know death for our sins and resurrect. 
But along the way, he's going, he passes through Samaria and Galilee. And there's these 10 men who are lepers who just shout out to him, Master, have mercy on us. They're filled with desperation. Now, you might wonder, what would bring these people to just shout out in public? I don't know the last time you shouted in public, the last time I did. I think it was Celtics playoff game last summer. Like, it's not something you do too often, walking down Main Street like, yeah. What caused these men to shout? Well, they were lepers, and they were in a lifelong quarantine. A week-long quarantine is hard enough but a lifelong quarantine from society because of their contagious skin condition, whatever it was. And Jesus, he responds to them, he says, show yourselves to the priests. And part of the priest's job during this time was to examine skin conditions to see if someone was healed or not. And if they were healed, they would declare them clean and they would send them back into society. It would be a wonderful time for that healed leper. And verse 14 says, as they were going... They were cleansed, a mustard seed of faith. They don't really know who Jesus is. As they were going, they were healed. And this group of ten rushed off to the temple. We don't know how long they were in the outskirts of town, how long they were in quarantine, but they were healed. They could see their friends again. They could see their wives and their children. They could sleep in their own bed. They could eat food at their own table. They could go to church and see other believers again and not have to hear the people singing at church but be on the outskirts with all who are sick. They were restored to community and they're rushing off to the temple. But one of them stops in his tracks, looks back at his healer, and runs and falls at his feet and glorifies God and thanks Jesus. And verse 16 gives us the posture of a disciple. This healed man fell face down at Jesus' feet, thanking him, filled with happy gratitude. At first, this man raised his voice in desperation. Jesus, Master, have mercy on me. And then the text says he raised his voice in praise, worshiping Jesus with gratitude. And this is kind of the cycle of the Christian life. We're desperate. We ask Jesus for help. He answers. We bring him praise. We're desperate. He answers. We bring him praise. So if you feel like, oh, I feel like I've been stuck in this cycle, you're probably in the right place. Jesus points out, or uh, Luke points out in verse 16, by, this, by the way, this man was a Samaritan. Remember that Jesus and his followers were Jews, They were not friendly towards Samaritans. And yet, Jesus later says, where are the other nine? Only this one man came back and he was a foreigner. Be well, your faith has saved you. Over and over and over again in the Gospel of Luke, we see both Luke and Jesus himself are honoring outcasts. Those are Samaritans, those who are sick, women, children, anyone who in that society was seen as less than Jesus is elevating. We have to keep asking why. Why does Jesus keep honoring the outcasts? It's because the outcasts often felt their need for him. And he's saying, do you want to know what faith looks like? It looks like the Samaritan man who has nothing except me. 
So Jesus says to this man, your faith has saved you. And I want to pull up this beautiful quote from Brian Chapel. What faith? Jesus says, your faith has made you well. What faith? There has been no repetition of the Apostles' Creed. There has been no statement of the divinity of Christ. All this leper has done is that he has fallen at the feet of Jesus and said, you made me well. Everything that is right about me, you did. All the leper does is say, Jesus, you fixed me. And we say, well, that's not much faith. That's practically a mustard seed of faith. But Jesus said, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you will see the power of God come down. So what we see, friends, in these stories and teachings is that all we need to bring is that mustard seed of faith, whether it's for the first time in your seats to say, I don't know much about you, Jesus, but I know that everything that is right about me is because of you. You are my healer. You're the one who can fix me. And then as we walk this way with Jesus, whatever that next step that is for you, that's scary, all it takes is a mustard seed of faith. And church, we will become slowly holy, humble, and happy people when we realize that our service in God's kingdom doesn't gain us anything because God our Father has already given us everything through Christ. As we turn to the Lord's table, um, I just want to reflect briefly on this happiness, this happy gratitude that we talked about. Um, We're called to happy gratitude, not only in the good times, but also in the hard times. And Jesus, on the worst night, I would argue, the worst night in human history, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, broke it, and he gave thanks. And we could do the same because we have him. We belong to him. So on the worst night of your week, this upcoming week, on the night of your grief, as you mourn the loss of a loved one, give thanks, break bread. On the night of your loneliness, give thanks, break bread. On the night of your brokenness or exhaustion, give thanks and break bread because your Father has given you everything in Christ and He welcomes you to His table. So this is for all of you who you don't have to recite the Apostles' Creed from memory. But this is for all of you who just look to Jesus and say, I need you. I'm desperate for you. Heal me. Forgive me. Make me yours. If that's not you yet, this meal isn't for you yet. But we would love to talk about this Jesus that we've come to know and love. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread He broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm going to pray here in a moment. And if you want to participate in communion, Uh, After I pray, you can come down the middle aisle, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and eat it on the way back to your seat. Let's pray.